Let us pray together. Oh, merciful God. Oh, great God. Oh, good God. Thank you. Lord, on the days where I think I'm doing it right, I still fall so miserably short. And on the days where I know that I'm messing up, because of your mercy and your grace, I'm able to stand tall in your presence. No day is so good that I am beyond the need of your grace. And no day is so bad that I am beyond the reach of your grace. Thank you that you are rich in mercy. And you have new mercies every morning for our daily messes. For where our sin abounds, your grace superabounds. And you do not relate to us based on our own merit our own goodness, or our own performance. If so, we would all be in hell. But you relate to us on the merit, the work, the blood, and the righteousness of your son, Jesus. And when you look at us, you look at us through him. And we thank you today that we are robed in his righteousness which allows us to come boldly before your throne of grace to find grace and mercy in our time of need to help us. God, teach us who we are so that we can know why we are, so that it can make sense of where we are. Minister to each broken heart today, each bowed down head. Lord, we have gotten into your presence so we already feel better. We already have, Lord, a Christological worldview that will give us the power to walk it out in this nasty here and now that we live in. Our eyes are on you, Jesus. And now our ears are open to what you would have to say to us from your word that will never return void. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the work that you're going to do this morning to not only preach through me, but also to teach us kingdom concepts. May this word not fall on deaf ears, but Lord, may it fall on a heart that's ready, ready to see a harvest come. Thank you today, Lord, that Satan is defeated. Thank you that death has lost its sting and the grave has no victory because our Savior not only died, but he got up and we worship him now in spirit and in truth for it's in Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Come on, give God another hand to pray. Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. Oh, man. When World War II ended in 1945, six million Jews in Europe were dead, killed in the Holocaust. More than one million of the victims were children. The Nazis implemented genocide on an unprecedented scale. However, and thankfully, there were thousands of Jews along with their children 
who were saved from this brutal carnage because they were hidden by brave people. Jewish families hid in homes of European sympathizers and in business establishments. They also hid in church ceilings, church basements, and even behind church organs. They disguised their identities by changing their names, cutting their hair, and by not speaking so as to conceal their accents. Jewish people were physically concealed from the outside world. Theirs was a life to be lived in the shadows, where a careless remark or an uncovered step could lead to discovery and even to death. One of the most discussed victims of the Holocaust was Anne Frank, a Jewish girl born in Frankfurt, Germany in 1929. When the Nazis gained control over Germany, Anne lost her citizenship in 1941 and thus became stateless. Anne's family moved to the Netherlands, hoping to avoid persecution. However, as persecutions of the Jews increased, Anne and her family went into hiding in some concealed rooms behind a bookcase in the building where her father worked from 1942 to 1944. An Austrian woman by the name of Mip Gies, who worked for Anne's father, hid Anne, her family, and four other Jews in Otto Frank's shop. During their two years of hiding, Anne kept a diary and wrote in it every day. The Franks were eventually arrested by the Gestapo, separated and transported to concentration camps where Anne and her sister eventually died in 1945 from typhus. Thankfully, Mip Gies retained Anne's diary after the family was arrested. She kept the book safe until Anne's father, Otto, the only Frank family survivor of the Holocaust, returned from Auschwitz to Amsterdam in 1945. He had Anne's diary published in Dutch in 1947, and it was later published in English in 1952 as the diary of a young girl or better known as the Diary of Anne Frank, and it has since been translated into over 60 different languages. We know about Anne Frank, but how many of us know about Mip Gies, the woman who risked her life to hide Anne and her family for two years? You see, there are heroes who hide people. And that's what we're going to talk about today, heroes who hide people. Because as we've been seeing in this series, that a hero is an unlikely person, an ordinary person who makes himself or herself available to God, and God does the rest through that weak and frail yet available vessel. Heroes are people who break unjust laws. Just because something is legal and government sanctioned, that doesn't mean that it's right or good. 
Everything Hitler did in Germany was legal. Slavery in the Americas was legal. Segregation was legal. Apartheid in South Africa was legal. Removing Native Americans off of their land was legal. But as we know, it was not right. And in his letter from a Birmingham jail, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, there are just laws and there are unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. And by the way, for those who like to speak constantly about our need to adhere to the rule of law, the rule of law, and obviously the rule of law has its place and it is necessary, but we must keep in mind that the rule of love always trumps the rule of law. And that's why we're here. We're here because love trumped law. Law said that we're all guilty before God. We've all sinned, we've fallen short, and we should receive the penalty for offending a holy God. The rule of law said we should die and be separated from God for all eternity. But I'm so glad the rule of love overruled the rule of law. And God says, I love them too much to live without them. And I'm going to make a way for them to be right with me. And the only way that can happen is if I send my son, who is perfect, to die in their place, on their behalf, so that they could be reconciled back to me. Thank God for the rule of love. And today I want you to meet a great freedom fighter from the scriptures, a man who hid people. I want you to meet a man by the name of Obadiah today. Obadiah's name means servant of Yahweh or servant of Jehovah. Obadiah worked for evil King Ahab as the governor of his estate. This means that Obadiah was King Ahab's chief attendant and overseer. The Bible describes him as a man who feared the Lord even from his youth. So I want you to see today how this righteous man used his power, his privilege, and his resources to help God's people by hiding them and feeding them for three years. Turning your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. And as you're turning there, and for those who may not have scriptures with you or on your phone, they will be on the screen let me give you the background context of 1 Kings 18. King Ahab is on the throne in the northern kingdom of Israel. As we know, the kingdom of the Jews has split into two compartments, the north and the south, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. And for Israel, their capital was in Samaria. King Ahab had come to the throne after the death of his father, Omri. And Omri was an evil man. But his son Ahab would even be more evil than his father was. As a matter of fact, there was a man who had ascended to the throne of the northern kingdom by the name of Jeroboam, and he was considered to be the scum of the earth. Yet Ahab is going to find a way 
to take the title away from uh, 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 Jeroboam and become the most evil king to sit on the throne of the northern kingdom. You see, Ahab did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he married a conniving, cantankerous woman by the name of Jezebel. And under her influence, he not only worshipped Baal, and we're going to talk about Baal in a moment, but he built shrines and temples for Baal, and he encouraged the people of God who worship Yahweh to worship Baal, an act of ultimate spiritual treason. You see, Baal is the god, small g, of rain, the thunder god, i.e. the god of fertility. So what God is going to do in order to bring about a revival in the land is he's got to shut up the heavens so that he can show the Jews that Baal, who claims to be the god of rain and the god of the storm, the god of fertility, he has no power over Yahweh. So God raises up Elijah to come, God's prophet and mouthpiece, to go to Ahab, whose wife is Jezebel, to say to them, at my word, it will not rain on the earth for a span of three years. We're going to show Baal up, and it's our hope that you will repent and recognize that Baal is no God at all. And so after Elijah announces this drought, this three-year drought, that the book of James says Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed to the same God that we pray to. And as he prayed, he asked God that it would not rain. God heard his prayer and said, at your word, Elijah, it will not rain. So through his prayers and through his faith to see the nation turn back to God, God said it won't rain. I'm going to make the heavens like bronze. And therefore, the ground is going to be hard and brittle. And you being an agrarian people, you're going to suffer because you've turned from the living God to idols. Now, I need you to hear this, Strong Tower. After God heard the prayers of Elijah and raised Elijah up to go and speak to the king, the Bible says God told him to go and hide. Hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. I'm going to command the birds, God says, specifically the ravens, to come feed you with flesh. And you'll drink from that fresh water hole. You'll drink from there. And then the Bible says that after that well uh, had dried up, God led him to Sidon to be with the widow in Zarephath who would also take care of him. But here's the point. God sanctions and ordains hiding. He said to the prophet, I want you to hide. You see, the angel told Joseph and his young wife Mary and their newborn Jesus child, to go and hide in Egypt. Uh, the Bible lets us know that Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, hid two spies from Israel as they came into the promised land to spy it out. We know that David hid from Saul for many years before he would be elevated to be king. And because David knew what he was working with with Saul, he even hid his parents in Moab so that Saul would not find his parents and kill them. Moses was hid by his mother, Jochebed, 
for three months until she could hide him no more. When Peter was freed in the book of Acts from Herod's prison and escaping from execution by the sword, the Bible says when the angel set him free, Peter then went to an undisclosed location and hid. The Bible says that when Paul went to Damascus and was converted on the road there, and he's in Damascus preaching God's word, that people tried to kill him. I find it interesting that he was going to Damascus as an unbeliever in order to capture Christians. But on the road, Jesus meets him, turns him into a believer, and now he is encouraging believers in Damascus. Now unbelievers want to kill him. And so they had to put him in a basket and let him out of the wall of the city through a window there. He had to be hidden. So there's a theology of having to be hidden in Scripture that God sanctions, ordains, and allows and the Bible lets us know in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1, as we look at this story, that it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. So the drought is coming to an end. James even says that it was three and a half years. And the word came to him saying, go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. And Ahab had called to Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For so it was, while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them. 50 to a cave and had fed them with bread and water. Now, that's a parenthetical comment right there because the writer is trying to let us know a little bit about who Obadiah is. So Obadiah fears the Lord, but he's got a really bad secular governmental job where he's around people who don't fear the Lord. So I want to encourage those of you who work with sinners those of you who work with publicans and tax collectors, uh, people who are unregenerate, whatever adjective you want to use to describe people who don't know Jesus, I just want to encourage you that you can let your light shine while you're there. You can be salt while you're there. Don't be discouraged. God put you there because he believes there's enough of him in you to rub off on them than it is in them to rub off on you because greater is he that is in you than any spirit that is in the world. You are not there by accident. Don't let them take you down. You lift them up and you be who you are and you don't compromise. It reminds me of when naming the Syrian had come to be healed, and, and he came, and he met with Elisha. And Elisha tells him to go dip in the Jordan River seven times, and his flesh will come out like a baby's flesh, being healed from leprosy. And he did that, and he believed that there was no other God but Yahweh. And he even took some of the dirt from Israel back home with him when he went back to Syria. And he said to Elisha the prophet, while my master, who is the king, is leaning on my arm while I'm in the temple of Dagon. Please forgive me. I know who the one true God is, but I still got to keep my job in this secular environment. Wow. 
And some of us need to know it's okay. Don't let other Christians berate you or belittle you because you may work in a space or a place that they don't have the faith to work in or they're not called to work in. But you stand for the Lord in that place. He knows your heart. So what a parenthetical comment that this man fed, housed 100 prophets of God. And he knows how crazy Jezebel is. She kills people. But yet, because he fears God, he says, I fear God more than I fear this woman. Just like the Hebrew midwives who were commanded by Pharaoh, when the baby boys are born, throw them into the Nile. The Hebrew uh, midwives fear God, the Bible says. And they saved the boys and did not throw them into the Nile. And so when uh, the, the Egyptian uh, folks came up and said, why are these boys living? And the Hebrew midwives said, well, you know, the, the Hebrew women ain't like the Egyptian women. When they give birth, them babies come, poof, they come right out real quick. So they kind of told a sanctified lie in that moment. Uh, uh, but still, they did the right thing in the midst of a wicked and depraved generation. And so it says in verse 5, And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go into the land to all the springs of water and to all the brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any livestock. So they divided the land between them to explore it. Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah went another way by himself. Now, as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him, and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is that you, my lord, Elijah? Remember, no one's seen this man for three years. He's hunted everywhere, as we'll see. The Bible says in verse 8, And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your master Elijah is here. So he said, How have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he is not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you. And now you say, go tell your master Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass as soon as I'm gone from you that the spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I do not know. So when I go and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. <laughs> but I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid 100 men of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave, and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your master Elijah is here. He will kill me. Then Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Oh my, I love Obadiah. A character we can just so casually read over to get to the good part. And yet the good part is coming where Elijah is going to withstand the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He's going to defeat them. He's going to show Baal up one more time. But none of that could have happened 
without this peace called Obadiah. We would just quickly read over the servant of the Lord's contribution to what God did in that moment and in that era of redemptive history. But Obadiah was a man who invested his time, his money, and his sweat equity to take care of God's prophets. Just think about that. He not only hid one person, he hid 100 people in a time where Jezebel was killing the prophets of God. He said, oh, no, I'm going to put my neck out. I'm going to take a risk because I fear God, and evil is evil, and I'm not going to sit by and watch it keep on occurring. So my faith is going to lead me to action, and I'm going to take care of God's prophets. 100 of them, I'm going to put my time in this because to, to feed them. And, and when he talked to Elijah, he's like, now, this is underground information. But did you hear about this, what I've been doing all this time? And not only have I invested my time, but, man, to feed people. A hundred of them. And everybody know preachers like to eat to feed a hundred preachers? You may not think this was a big deal, but them 50 dudes to two caves thought this was a big deal. And they knew Obadiah's name, even if we do not. And so the message today is that there's a glory in hiding people. And watch this. If you can't hide people who are in trouble, can you at least feed people who are hungry? Because the Bible says he not only hit them, but he fed them and he gave them water. So if you can't hide them, because we're not in that time right now where maybe we've got to hide people uh, from government tyranny. Unless you are being deported for reasons. But anyway, I'm going to leave that alone. But, but, but if you may not be called to hide people, but can you feed people? And if you don't feed people, can you give people some water? And if you don't give people some water, can you give some naked people some clothing? Oh, my. Last week, I found out about how our resource trailer that we're fortunate to stock and that many of our women oversee making sure that's taken care of, we were able to go into that trailer and give clothes to children who did not have clothes to go to school. Even uniform schools where underprivileged children can't always afford to buy the khaki pants. We went into the trailer and we were able to bless families. Oh, man, that's what the church is all about. You may not think that's much, but the kid who doesn't have clothes to wear to school, the kid who doesn't have shoes, who, who just doesn't feel as good about himself or herself because they're seated amongst people who look better than they do. It means a lot to that child. So if you can't hide them, feed them. If you can't feed them, give them water. If you can't give them water, give some naked people some clothes. And if you can't do that, go visit some folks who are in prison. Go visit some folks who are in the hospital. Take in the stranger any way that we can. Because when we stand before Jesus, the first issue of discussion will not be what your political party was. It won't be what your theological position was. It won't be what denomination you were a part of. Jesus is going to want to know, did you take care of the least of these? 
Did you feed people who were hungry? Did you clothe people who were naked? Did you, did you give water to folks who were thirsty? Did you take strangers in or did you tell them to leave? And while I'm right here, let's talk about the term illegal alien and undocumented person. Illegal alien does not dignify a person's imago dei essence that they've been made in the image of God. Because if we really want to say who's illegal, undocumented is better than saying illegal alien. And God's called us to love our neighbor even if they're documented or undocumented. I was in Alabama not long ago, and they were uh, looking at an ordinance in the city of Alabama where it would be illegal to transport an undocumented person. So this would mean that churches that pick up undocumented people could not bring them to church. And thank God I was with some preachers that had some backbone who said, well, we're just going to have to break that law because we're bringing God's people into God's house. I want to tell you a story about how one woman in this church is making a difference when it comes to feeding people. Three years ago, she met the Maplewood High School football coach. Give Me 10 was involved at Maplewood and other schools already, providing food for families in need over extended school breaks and in emergency situations. However, after sharing with their art teacher that something was missing in her, something relational, something more personal, he continued to insist that she meet with the football coach, even though she was sure that there was no way she could be of assistance to a high school football team, she finally met with the coach. In that first meeting, they discussed how for the last six years, the coaches had been paying out of pocket to buy peanut butter, jelly, and bread so that the 40 to 50 boys who show up for practice six weeks in the summer would have something to eat. For many of their boys at Maplewood, that peanut butter and jelly sandwich was their consistent meal during the summer when they didn't have access to free breakfast and lunch at school. She left that meeting committed to feeding the football team the entire summer. And when she got in her car, she said, what did I just say that I would do? But God provided. Of course, over the next few months, what would be the exact amount of money that she would need uh, to feed these young men during the summer? She didn't even know what to pray for or how to raise the money because you don't know what it costs to feed 50 teenage boys for six weeks until you start doing it. And every day during practice, she would drop off either a packed lunch or pizza. Then one day a week, she would, di uh, uh, she would sit down in what they called the sit-down dinner with the entire team after practice. When their summer practice ended, she was sad, and she looked forward to packing those lunches every day, having her car smell like pizza all the time, because when you put 25 pizzas in your car every week, the, the smell never leaves and knowing that she would see all of them even briefly while dropping it off. She was more blessed in giving than they were in receiving. But mostly she had experienced so much joy with the boys and their coaches at those sit-down dinners. 
It was the thing that had been missing for her. So when she shared that with the coach, he asked if she wanted to keep doing the sit-down dinners with the team one night a week. As a result, for the last two seasons, after they watch film on Monday nights, they have let her crash their party and bring them dinner. Because of this relationship that she has, she has the opportunity to raise money when they needed new equipment or they had other needs. And it's also opened the doors to connect with other sports teams, groups, students, and families at Maplewood to help meet their needs. And this morning, I want to honor a heroine, Liz Eskridge, who's not here this morning. And because I knew she wasn't coming this morning, I said, I'm going to talk about you this morning. So thank God for Liz Eskridge. <clears throat> if you can't hide them, feed them. I want to thank you for what you've done as a church to minister to people who are marginalized, people who are underserved, people who have less than we have, because that's what we are called to do. Oh, I'm going to make this quick as I close, but I want to introduce you to a 19th century Obadiah. As I close, I want to tell you about a 19th century Obadiah from East Tennessee, and his name is Reverend John Rankin a white Presbyterian minister. John Rankin was born in 1793 in Jefferson County, Tennessee. And that was the same year that Eli Whitney's cotton gin received the patent. It was also the year of the Fugitive Slave Act. And that's when John was born. His mother understood slavery's depravity and protested its evils. She persistently pressed her anti-slavery beliefs upon her children, neighbors, and church members. And of all of the children they had, only one child decided to own slaves. In 1817, John preached that the mission of Christianity is to drive oppression from the earth. His elders told him after the sermon that his words were incendiary. He was told to never preach on the subject of oppression again. But ignoring their pleas, John would continue preaching on oppression and he even used the word slavery in his sermons. The church's elders told him that he should consider leaving Tennessee, which was a slave state, if he planned on preaching against slavery again. So Rankin decided to move to the free state of Ohio, but before arriving there, he stopped to preach in Lexington and Paris, Kentucky. He would stay in Kentucky for four years where he started schools for slaves and deepened his anti-slavery views. On the night of December 31st, 1821, Rankin rode his family across the icy Ohio River where he settled into a town called Ripley. In Ripley, he started several schools to educate escaped slaves and he began preaching in the churches. The local newspaper began publishing letters that he wrote to his brother on the topic of slavery. Remember, he had a sibling that owned slaves. And so he would write to his brother and try to convince his brother that that was an inhumane thing and he needed to stop it. Well, those letters were published. And this caused his reputation to grow among supporters and opponents. In 1829... Rankin moved his wife and nine children to a house at the top of a 540-foot five, hill that provided a view of the village, 
the Ohio River and the Kentucky shoreline. Like a city on a hill, the Rankin home would provide guidance for runaway slaves on the other side of the river. A lantern would be placed in the front window or it would be raised on a flagpole to signal slaves in Kentucky when it was safe for them to cross the icy river. Rankin also constructed a staircase leading up the hill to the house for the slaves to climb up more easily to safety. For over 40 years leading up to the Civil War, many of the slaves who escaped to freedom to go further north stayed at the Rankin house. A bounty of $3,000 was placed on his life, and in 1841, he and his sons had to fight off attackers who came to burn his house and his barn in the middle of the night. The passage of the Fugitive Slave Law in 1850 heightened the danger of assisting runaways as it had become illegal to do so, even in free states. But Rankin declared, disobedience to the enactment is obedience to God. Prominent civil rights abolitionists, William Lord Garrison and Harriet Beecher Stowe, who would write Uncle Tom's Cabin that Abraham Lincoln said was the book that led to the Civil War, they were influenced by Rankin's writings and work in the anti-slavery movement. When Henry Ward Beecher, who was married to Harriet Ward Beecher, was asked at the end of the Civil War, who abolished slavery? He answered, Reverend John Rankin, and his sons did. C.S. Lewis once said, if you read history, you will find that those who did the most for the present world were the ones who thought the most of the world to come. So how do we apply this? How do we apply this? Well, open up your heart. Open up your heart. Open up your eyes to see hurting people, to see afflicted people, to see burdened people. And then if God leads and you have the ability, open up your home, make the sacrifice. Open up your church, invite people to church, bring people to church. Open up your wallet, use your money to help agencies and organizations that help hurting and displaced people. Open up your mouth, open up your prayers, open up your proximity, open up a history book. And above all, open up the scriptures to see that God sanctions not only hiding, but he also protects the people that he calls to hide. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for people who often get overlooked by history. Mip G's who helped Anne Frank's family. We read of Rankin, how he was able to help people. And we know about Harriet Tubman, and we should. We know about John Brown, and we should. But we want to know about these people who work in the shadows and help people in the shadows. And the beautiful thing, Lord, is that when you call us to do something, we don't always have to parade it on Facebook or on social media. When we give money to a homeless person, when we open up our home to a brother or sister in the faith that needs somewhere to stay, over the holidays or is experiencing financial difficulty. We don't always need to shout it from the rooftops. We just need to do it. We need to be your hands. We need to be your feet. And when necessary, be your mouth. 
So thank you, Lord, for these stories of heroes and heroines who can inspire us to let us know that ordinary people can make a difference because we serve an extraordinary God. So, Lord, bless this church to be a blessing. Minister through us, even as you minister to us. We give you all of the glory, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? Would you stand to your feet? Now, last week, we didn't have church. Man, I missed y'all. I love the people in this church. Y'all are family. And when that Sunday didn't happen last week, I was on my knees when Pastor Jerry called and told me about we didn't have water in the building. And as we would find out with the help of a professional that there was this small little tube that was frozen with ice, the backflow prevention valve, which is to protect the city's water from impure water going back into the system. And so that thing was frozen, and it shut everything down. One small thing was frozen. And so in that, God taught a lesson to us. Don't let a small place in your heart that's frozen with bitterness or unforgiveness stop the flow of God's spirit. Keep on asking God to thaw you out and to help you. But we're back on course again, and it's so good to be with you. Now, in the future, when there's inclement weather during the week, just so you know, we follow the school system of Davidson County. So if Davidson County shuts down on a Wednesday because of inclement weather, then on Wednesday nights we shut down huddle groups. So we, we, we err on the side of safety uh, as the weather may get worse. Uh, and then you can always check your app, check the website, check social media. A few of you came to church last week and probably thought the rapture took place, and we want to apologize <laughs> to you for that. <laughs> we tried to get the word out. But let me tell you another thing about how faithful God is. You know, for a lot of churches, the last Sunday of the year is a big giving Sunday because a lot of people who make a lot of money, they hold their offering until the last Sunday so they can draw as much interest on it as possible. Then they write a big check. We don't have a whole lot of those kind of people up in here. Uh, uh, if you are, can you just raise your hand? No, don't do that. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of that. But guess what? We need a little over $14,000 a week to make our budget annually. And God's been blessing through your obedience to him and your love for him to give to him at this house, whereby there's less red in the numbers now. There's more black. <laughs> black is beautiful. There's more black. <laughs> and without taking an offering last week through funds that came in online and in the mail, we met our weekly budget. That's how God does it. He doesn't need us, but he'll use us. Grab hands with somebody next to you. Grab hands with somebody next to you. Come on. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. It's according to the power that is at work within us. To him be the glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forevermore. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Have a blessed day. Have a blessed day.